Well, as we continue our series on First John or in First John, uh, we're going to be looking at this morning the, the freedom we believe that Christ has won for us. It's a freedom in some ways we celebrate in baptism, um, but, but a freedom that he's won for us by virtue of him conquering sin, conquering death, and rising again. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to First John 3, verses 4 through 10 is where we'll be at in just a couple minutes this morning. Um, I, I have a picture to show to start out. How many of you know what this is? Know what that is? Okay, how many of you have been on one of these? All right, yeah. Uh, this is a slack line, in case you don't know. Um, it's also a very effective way to break your ankles or your wrists if you're not good at balancing. Um, but it, it's a, essentially a tightrope you put between two trees uh, that's about one to two inches long, kind of varies. And then you, you set it up and try to walk back and forth. And if you're really good, maybe do tricks, do flips, something like that. Uh, but, but part of what you need for a slack line is you need a good amount of tension. So you put it between two trees and then you use a, a ratchet or something else to kind of crank up the tension because without tension, it doesn't ultimately work. There is this tension in the book of First John when it comes to talking about sin. And maybe you've caught it if you've read through this book before, or maybe you've even caught it as we've been walking through this book, preaching on it. That, that in some ways, First John can sound like a very perfectionistic book when it comes to sin, as if Christians will never sin again once they come to faith in Christ. So the, this morning, just looking at two of the verses we're going to read, first in verse 6, John's going to say, no one who abides in him, Christ, keeps on sinning. And, and then we jump down to verse 9, and he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But, but on the other hand, 1 John can sound like one of the least perfectionistic books at times when it comes to sin. So, so like we read earlier in the series and talked about in 1 John 1, 8 through 9, he says, if we say we have no sin, there's no sin in us, we, we deceive ourselves. We're essentially liars. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, but if anyone does sin, and the idea kind of being we, we will, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I mean, do do you see and hear the tension there in John's words? No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. Uh, but if we say we have no sin, then we're a liar, we deceive ourselves. What are we supposed to do about that tension? How are we supposed to make sense of it? Is John saying two different things? What, what's going on? Well, I think first of all, we can recognize in the passage we're reading today, I believe John isn't talking about particular instances or acts of sin, but rather what is the prevailing character or habit in someone's life. And so I think John Piper describes what he's saying well, what John is saying in these verses when he says, in view of all his, John's insistence, that Christians do sin, we can't take these verses to mean Christians don't sin at all. We should take them to mean that Christians don't go on sinning without conflict and confession. Christians see it, sin, hate it, confess it, and fight it. And they do so with increasing vigilance as they grow up 
into Christ. So we shouldn't read this passage this morning and then walk away thinking, okay, so every time I sin, I should call into question whether I'm a Christian or not. That, that's not what John is saying. I don't think he, that's what he'd want for us at all or what God would want for us. But we should read it and recognize that there is a warning in there and even something that perhaps should be concerning to some. That, that if, if there is a certain pattern or area of sin in our lives, that rather than confessing it, seeing it, fighting against it, no matter how many times we stumble and fall into it, we're simply okay with it, we make peace with it, we enjoy it, we hide it away. That, that's a red flag John is giving us that if we say we're a Christian and yet that's true of us, that it, we should be concerned about it and we should evaluate our lives. But, but there's a second part, I think, of this tension that John throughout his book both appears to be giving hope for those who sin, sinners like us, saying, run to Christ flee to him, ask him for forgiveness, and know that you have an advocate who forgives without limit. Like that's really good hope for sinful people like us. While at the same time warning us to never make peace with sin in our lives. To never make peace with sin in our lives, an area of sin in our lives, no matter how long we may struggle with it. By telling us this is dangerous and can be deadly. We have hope when we sin, which we will, but don't make peace with sin. Make war against it, rather, you might say. I think of an illustration, a, a picture that maybe helps capture that tension for us. It, it's the picture of going whitewater rafting on, on maybe like class five rapids. If you've been whitewater rafting before, you know that part of that is you have to wear a life vest. At least I hope that was part of your experience if you went whitewater rafting. And the idea is, okay, if you fall in the water, you'll be okay because you have a life vest on. But you also likely hear before you go, don't fall in the water. Like, stay on the boat. Don't fall in the water because the water is dangerous and it could potentially be deadly. A good guide in whitewater rafting will both tell you, hey, don't fall in the water. Like, do everything I say. Follow my instructions so we get safely down this river. While also saying, but if you do fall in the water, don't freak out. Don't despair because you've got a life vest on and we'll get you back in the boat. Right? John is like a good guide for us who's saying, don't sin. Don't make peace with sin in your life. Fight back against it. It is dangerous, deadly, seeks to enslave us. But if you do sin, which we will still over and over again, don't despair. Don't freak out. You, you have an advocate in Christ. Run to him over and over again every time you sin. And I would say, John, in the passage we're going to read this morning, is emphasizing the former part of that tension. Fight sin. Fight back against it. It's dangerous. It's deadly. It seeks to enslave you. Fight for the freedom that Jesus has already won for you. That's the big idea we're having this morning with this passage in John. Fight for the freedom Jesus has won for you. And in this passage, I think we're going to come across four things that we need to know if we're going to fight for the freedom Jesus has won for us. Four things we need to know and believe. First, we need to know what true freedom is. What does it mean to be free? Second, we need to know why Jesus came into this world. Third, we need to know that we're in the middle of a war 
And then fourth, we need to know that we've got a new nature if we put our faith in Christ. So let's pray and then read John's words and look at those four things as we cover this passage. Father, whenever we open up your word, there's a sense of inadequacy, whether it's being preached or whether we're just reading it on our own, that we can't see and hear what we need to on our own but we need you, we need your spirit to open our eyes, to help us understand these words, to help us grasp what's being said, to help us grasp how it should impact our lives and change us. And and I know there there are times where we come to the Bible and, and we need to be just encouraged and pointed to the hope we have in Christ and reminded of his promises and goodness. And I pray that that would happen this morning. And maybe there are people here who just desperately need that part. But then there are also times where, where I know for myself we need to be warned not to make peace with sin in our lives, but to fight back. And so I pray that we don't hear that warning as well and, and take it seriously as we read and talk about John's words. Speak to us for our good and your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting in 1 John 3, looking at verse 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and all who are the children of the devil— and who are the children of God? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if we, we start just in verse 4, we could say we need to know what true freedom is. We need to know what true freedom is. That freedom is not just freedom from something, but also freedom for something. In this passage, or in this verse, we we get a definition of sin. That sin is lawlessness. Sin is rejecting and rebelling God's good, wise, perfect commands and laws. And so, in essence, rebelling against him. But, But what we might see from that also is that freedom for the Christian is not freedom from obeying God's laws and commands. Like we don't, like, like as if we don't have to do that anymore. Because God's laws and commands are good and wise. But, but there is a sense when we come to talking about the law that we are freed from something. We're freed from the condemnation and judgment that we rightfully deserve as a result of breaking God's law. That, that's the first part of this. That Jesus frees us from the condemnation of the law. That, that we would, if we looked at ourselves honestly, know we have all broken God's good, perfect law and commands over and over and over again in our lives. And as any lawbreakers, we deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment from God. 
but it's through faith in Christ and his death and his resurrection, his, his life, that we're freed from that condemnation because we believe he took it on himself on the cross, which is why Paul can say some of the most glorious words in the Bible, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, we no longer have to beat ourselves up over and over again over sin. We no longer have to be completely self-critical, constantly drawing our flaws, constantly thinking that we deserve condemnation because Jesus has set us free from condemnation. But he's also set us free for something, from something, for something. That Jesus has set us free for joyfully obeying God. When we only emphasize the freedom from aspect, which I would say, I think that's the tendency probably in our culture in our time. Like, I want to be free from all kind of outside constraints and rules and laws to do whatever I want. When we, we can do that as Christians, so when we, we only emphasize the freedom from aspect. We end up believing or thinking, well, I've been freed from condemnation, so now I can just live however I want. But, but we need to see that the Bible over and over again says, no, that's foolish. And that's part of what John's saying here. We've not just been freed from something, but freed for something. Righteousness, being free from actually practicing sin and rather doing what God says is good and right. Paul writes about this type of freedom too in Romans 6. In Romans 6, 17, he says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, were once slaves of sin, but, but not anymore, you've been freed through faith in Christ have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. I mean, do you hear what he's saying? Freed from sin, condemnation. Freed for obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching. When we end up just focusing on the freed from part, we have a false freedom that actually kind of re-enslaves us because we just become slaves to our own sinful desires, right? When we just focus on the freedom from power rather than the freedom for. Here's what I think of when I think about that. I think about getting my driver's license 16 years ago. 16 years ago, wow. Uh, I can still remember that day. Remember getting that little card, walking out of the DMV. You probably remember this too if you have driver's license and thinking in that moment, I'm free. I'm free, baby. No more having mom and dad drive with me. No more having to ask for rides. Like, I'm free to drive where I want and blare third eye blind in my car as loud as I want. Let's go. Let's go. I was freed from something. Freed from having someone else in the car. Freed from having to ask for rides. But that didn't mean that I could then go out and say, I'm free. I can drive however I want. And you know what? I'm going to drive on the opposite side of the road today because I'm free. That, that would have been a false freedom, a very short-lived freedom that was actually re-enslaving ultimately. Now, I, I was freed to be able to drive according to the law's commands that are meant to ensure that my freedom continues. And that's part of what John's getting at in this passage and what the Bible gets at in freedom. True freedom is not simply freedom to live however I want. It's not freedom that says I'm free from condemnation so I can do whatever I want. That's just a re-enslavement to sin and our sinful desires. 
But for the Christian, freedom says, I'm freed from condemnation. And now I get to obey God, who is so good and loving that he gave up his son to save me. And so we get to start joyfully obeying him, even though we will still fail miserably at that type of obedience over and over again. It becomes more and more kind of our desire. I think it's really important for us to know what true freedom is because Satan will try to lie to us and keep us trapped in a false freedom, maybe even using scripture, saying, well, you've been freed from condemnation, Kyle. You've been fr- There's no condemnation for you. Just live however you want. Meanwhile, if I buy into that lie, I just re-enslave myself to sin and sinful desires. Like God wants to offer us a freedom from condemnation and a freedom for joyfully obeying him. And we need to know that that is true freedom if we're going to fight for freedom. The second thing we might say we need to know if we continue on to verses 5 through 7, we need to know why Jesus came to this earth. We need to know why, why did Jesus invade this world? Why did he come here? Why did he appear, John? John tells us in verse 5, Here's why Jesus appeared. Here's why he came to the world. He came on a mission and with a purpose to take away sin. And I don't believe that verse is just talking about Jesus coming to die to forgive and atone our sins. But also that in a really real sense, Jesus came to take sin away from this world. Like we believe that's a process that won't be complete until he returns and completely eradicate sin. But we believe it's a process that begins in the lives of his followers. That Jesus didn't just come to take care of the problem of us being separated from God, although he absolutely did that by forgiving our sins, making us righteous. But he also came to begin a renewal in us where he helps us make progress and actually starts to remove sin from our lives. Again, Not that we ever become perfect in this life as Christians, but that we do make progress, even if it's ever so slowly. And it's interesting, John's conclusion, he says also in verse 5, like, the only one who could do that is Jesus, because he's the only one who had no sin. And then his conclusion in verse 6, if you look at it, is, is essentially this. Like, if that's why Jesus came, to take away sin, then if, if we claim to know Christ, trust him, abide in him, it ends up being irrational for us anytime we choose to sin. If Jesus came to take away sin, that's his very purpose and mission, then it ends up being irrational for me as a Christian anytime I do choose to sin. Now, you might say, okay, that's true, but how does that help us? Like, how does that help us in our battles against sin? And I think there there are two ways that might be able to help us. The first, it can help us think correctly about sin. In some ways, all sin starts with us not thinking and believing correctly. That, That if you dig behind sin, the root of all sin is unbelief in some way. Not believing what's true about Christ and what he's done and who we are in him. That there's an unbelief there at the root. And so John's building this argument to help us think and believe correctly about Jesus. Saying, remember why he came. Remember who he is. He has no sin. Remember he came to take away sin. And that when we believe that, 
and are actually living in line with that, then sin ends up being irrational. Like, sin, we, we might, it's kind of a ridiculous picture, but we might picture it honestly in this way. It's like someone who's mopping the floor with muddy shoes on. You get that picture in your head? You've probably never seen anyone do that because it's irrational, right? You, you don't mop the floors getting them clean to then have muddy shoes that you're walking right behind getting the floors all dirty again. You, you end up undoing the very thing you were doing. That's in essence what we do when we sin. We're undoing the very thing that Jesus came to do and that he will do, take away sin. Do, do you see? John's making like a logical argument here of we should fight sin because Jesus came to take away sin. And again, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect in this life, but it does mean we should never make peace with sin. Like we should see it doesn't make sense for me to claim to know Christ and to keep sinning, so I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight, and I'm not going to make peace with this no matter what, and no matter how long I may have to make war against it. John's helping us to think correctly about sin, and then I would also say, I think he's helping to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's building this argument, here's who Jesus is, here's what he's done, now if you abide in him, don't keep sinning. There's a way that we can approach fighting sin where we, in essence, say, just stop doing that, Kyle. Just stop doing that. You're not supposed to do that. Just stop doing that. But part of the strategy the Bible gives us to fight for freedom from sin is to say, enjoy what you have that is better. Like, enjoy Christ and all that he is and all that he's done and all the promises he's made because he's so much better. He's the radiance of goodness, no sin in him. He's the most powerful and loving person there is. He's come to rescue us. He promises us life of joy forever with him. And that the more we fix our eyes on Christ, then the more sin starts to progressively lose power in our lives. Here's again, maybe a a picture for us in that. We might imagine someone who's been homeless for five years of their lives. They've lived on the street night after night, slept on the street night after night after night after night after night. And then in an instant, they're gifted a brand new home. It's theirs. 6,000 square feet, six bedrooms, beautiful kitchen, amazing view, pool out back. If that person continued to sleep on the street night after night after night, you might go up to them and you might say, uh, stop sleeping on the street. Or you might go up to them and you might show them pictures of their home. And you might talk about it. You might say, look at what you've got. Look at what you have. Look, look at that pool. Look at these bedrooms. Look at all you have in your home. Go enjoy your home. That's part of the strategy we're given in the Bible to fight sin. Like, look at Christ and all we have in him, all he's done, all he is. Abide in him, enjoy him, see what he's done, see what he promises, cling to that. And as we do, then sin starts to lose its power. Because I think sometimes if we get so fixated on whatever sin we're struggling with, we just end up so focused on that that we forget we've got something so much better, Christ so much better 
than whatever sin we're struggling with. So we need to know who Jesus is and why he came to this earth if we're going to fight for freedom by fighting for joy in him. And then thirdly, if we go down to verse 8, we need to know we're involved in a war. I would say verse 8, John makes it clear there's a war going on. There's a war been going on for all of history. A war between the devil and between God. That, that John's point to the devil is the originator of sin. He's the OG sinner, we might say. Like he's opposed to everything God is. Everything God does. He wants to corrupt all that God makes good. He wants to undo all that God does. And this is a cosmic war. Two sides. The devil and God, John's getting us to see. And then if we would read on to verse 9 and 10, we'd see there are no neutral parties in this war. Like There are no spiritual Switzerland's. There is no one who says, I'm not on one side. Well, they may say I'm not on one side or the other, but who isn't in reality on one side or the other. Either we are on Satan's side and opposed to God and light and righteousness, or we're on God's side and we're opposed to sin and darkness and Satan. Either, John says, we're a child of the devil, which we are by nature, or we're a child of God, which we are by him saving us and us putting our faith in Christ. I don't know if you're like this. I think I've mentioned this already. There are times when I'm reading through 1 John and he uses such black and white, such stark language that I want to push back. I say, John, why? Like it doesn't seem like the best strategy to win someone to Christ by calling them, well, you're a child of the devil. Right, John, why are you using this language? Why are you using this language? Not only because when we get behind things, it, it is true, but also because I would say John wants us to wake up to reality. Like he wants us to wake up to what's really happening. I tend to forget there's a war going on. Like I tend to just go about my life kind of with my family, doing my day-to-day thing, and forget there is a war going on. And one of the worst things that could happen would be to be in the middle of a war zone and not know there's a war with an enemy who's actively trying to destroy you. So John wants us to know there is an all-out war. And, and when we end up being casual about sin or making peace with it, we're, we're denying that there's really a war, and we're actually helping the, the enemy if we would say that we're Christians. I, I saw an all-out war in my backyard this past week. It's a, a little bit of an exaggeration, but uh, I saw multiple hawks in our backyard for the first time that I've seen since living at this house. One was on the shed, one was flying around. And wh- why were there hawks in my backyard? Because there were also multiple robin's nests in our backyard. For the first time in my life, I saw a hawk swoop down into a tree, into a robin's la- nest, take a nestling, fly away as robins chased after it, like screaming at it. It was a crazy sight. Here's here's what I realized. The robins know they're in a war right now. Like they know they've got an enemy. They know those hawks are coming after their nestlings. And I didn't see one robin who flew up to a hawk and kind of helped that hawk by saying, hey, let me me show you where my nest is. You come get this. The, The robins knew they were in a war. And so they were doing everything they could to fight back against the enemy. 
There is a war happening for our freedom. Like Satan would love nothing more than to re-enslave me, re-enslave you if your faith is in Christ. Or he would love nothing more than to keep you enslaved if you're not trusting in Christ and convince you that you're not actually a slave and there's no war going on. Like that, that's Satan's goal. Love nothing more than that. And when we choose to sin, we, we should see as Christians what we're effectively doing is aiding and abetting the enemy. We're scoring a point for the opposite side. Like, like we need to know this so that we are motivated not to make peace with sin, but to make war against it. Because one of the roles that we have as Christians in this war is to fight back against sin and by God's grace make progress against it in our lives. But, but when we realize there's a war for our freedom happening, it shouldn't lead us to despair when we sin because we still will because Jesus has won the war. That's one of the greatest parts of this passage in verse 8. I, I, I was just smiling as I was reading it this week and then thinking about it. Like Jesus already won the war. Verse 8, notice again why Jesus came to this world. To destroy the works of the devil. Not not to take care of some of them, not to undo a couple of them, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus won the war 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross. And if your faith is in Christ, you are on the winning side. That doesn't mean the battles don't continue to rage on. They absolutely do. And every time we struggle with temptation and sin, a battle is raging on. And it doesn't mean that we won't sometimes lose those battles. But if your faith is in Christ, you still ultimately win. Satan can't have you. He can't ultimately defeat you because Christ has already won. And like even when we do fail and fall to sin, like we're all going to, when we run to Christ and confess our sins, his victory over Satan is once again displayed by forgiving us. And he says, I win. I win. I thought back to the the hawks and robins in my backyard. I thought, how much more confidence would have the robins had in their fight against these hawks if they had an eagle on their side? Like an eagle's bigger and better than a hawk. An eagle will take out a hawk or chase it away. Eagle wins against a hawk. And if you're a robin in a battle against hawks and you man, I've got an eagle on my side, how much more confidence does that give to say, all right, I'm going to fight back because ultimately I can't be defeated. John is telling us in this passage, in Christ, Satan can't ultimately defeat us. Like I, I just want us to know this. I, I want myself to know this. In Christ, you don't lose. You can't lose. Like, like that should, if, if we grasp that, that should cause us to rejoice and praise Christ. And, and if we're not trusting in Christ, that's a great reason to confess our sins and trust him because you can't lose in him. I mean, when, when you beat sin, when you make progress against sin, it's because Christ is in us. And when we fall to sin, well, we can run to our advocate, confess our sins, and know he wins, period. That should massively encourage us to fight against sin and fight for the freedom that Jesus has already won in many ways. And then the last thing we might see in this passage beyond that is we need to know that we've got a new nature. 
in verses 9 and 10, we see this. In many ways, the, the Bible's teaching on pursuing holiness, obeying God, fighting against sin, if you're a Christian, is essentially be who you are or be who God says you are. Right? And so that, that's why this passage comes on the heels of John talking about the fact that we are God's children. He's our father. We're part of his family. John said, you've got a new identity. But more than that, he's also saying, Christian, you've got a new nature. He says in verse 9, we've been born of God and that we have God's seed abiding in us. That one of the beautiful things the Bible tells us is that when we get saved, when God saves us, we put our faith in Christ, we literally become a new creation, a new you, a new me. This is why when God's talking about uh, in Ezekiel what he's going to do for his people when he saves them, he says this, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. It's only because God gives us a new heart, new spirit, puts his seed nature in us that we can do any of the things we've talked about this morning. Apart from God giving us a new nature, it's impossible for us to joyfully obey God, to enjoy Christ, and to fight sin. It's impossible. But by virtue of God giving us a new nature, it's not only possible, but it will progressively happen. Maybe very slowly, because we're going to fall and fail, and we're going to try to obey God and slip up. We're going to try to enjoy Christ and feel our desires are so weak. We're going to fight sin, and we're going to stumble and fail again and again. But but progressively, progressively, we make progress because of God giving us a new nature. And it's, there's a warning there, again, that if there is a consistent unwillingness to obey God, a consistent, complete lack of desire for Christ, and, and a consistent, uncaring attitude towards sin in our lives, we should be warned if we claim that we know Christ because John's saying the evidence doesn't match up then. But I think for most Christians who just kind of struggle in these areas day after day, like just struggle to obey God, I just struggle to enjoy Christ. I feel like my desires are so weak. I, I just struggle to fight sin and feel like I fail so often. For most of us, we, we just need John to tell us, remember who you are. Like remember that you've got a new nature. Like re- remember that you're free. You're free to obey God. You're free to enjoy Christ. You're free to fight sin. You're able to because of what God's done in you. Remember who you are and fight for the freedom that God's given to you. I I think, again, of a a picture with this, that that we might picture a butterfly versus a caterpillar, right? That, That a butterfly no longer crawls along the ground like a caterpillar. Why? Because that butterfly can fly. And flying is so much better than inching yourself across the dirt by pushing your belly up and down. But that doesn't mean the butterfly won't ever land on the ground or walk on the ground. But, but if you came across a butterfly that was just consistently walking on the ground and like its wings weren't broken, there was nothing wrong with it, I would think, man, that butterfly has forgotten it is able to fly. Like someone should remind that butterfly it's able to fly. 
And in the same way, John wants to remind us as Christians, we are able to obey God and find joy in obeying him. We are able to enjoy Christ. We are able to fight sin and make progress because God has set us free and Jesus has won our freedom. So fight for that freedom more and more. And I think of two, part of the beauty of the gospel is not only that we're free to do those things now, free to obey God, free to enjoy Christ, free to fight sin, but that we have hope when we fall flat on our face in any of those areas, which we're going to. Like we've got hope when we fall flat on our face in any three of those areas. When we do aid and abet the enemy, when we do sin even though it's irrational, when we fail to obey God, like we have hope and that hope is so necessary for us to keep going to fight for our freedom. If we would circle back to that first analogy or picture we used this morning, the idea of whitewater rafting. If I get on a whitewater raft and the guide would look at me and tell me, don't fall in. If you do fall in, we're leaving you behind and there's a good chance you're going to drown. Whitewater rafting immediately becomes a prison. Like there's no joy in it. I'm, I might paddle and try to get through, but it's because I'm fearful for my very life. But if a guy looks at me and says, hey, don't fall in. But if you do fall in, like, don't worry. I will not leave you behind. I will not let you drown. And we will pull you up out of that water and back into this boat no matter what. All of a sudden, I've got the hope I need to actually enjoy white rattle rafting and apply myself to getting down that river. Like the gospel tells us we are free to obey God, free to enjoy Christ, free to fight sin. But Jesus also tells us when you fail, don't lose hope. I won't leave you behind. I won't let you drown. I won't let you go. I am your advocate. I will pull you back into the boat, forgive you again, and you can keep paddling. And that is the hope that we need as Christians if we're going to fight for the freedom God has given us, that Jesus has won for us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that part of what we have in Christ, not because of any merit in our own, but only because of what he's done, is a freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Thank you for that. We praise you that it's not just a freedom from things, although that's incredible, but also a freedom to know and enjoy you, to become more like Christ. Like God, we, we want those things for our lives. We want to obey you. We, we want to enjoy Christ. We, we want to fight against sin and make progress. And God, we, we just pray, help us. We need your help in all those areas. Would you, would you help us? And would you just keep our eyes fixed on Christ and remember the hope we have in him in the midst of this life? Pray this in Jesus' name.